turn back now or learn the stuff they don't want you to know. Here are the facts. Public opinion is big business. As of 2011, there were more than 7,000 public relations firms in the United States alone. These companies work on behalf of corporations, trade organizations, or individuals who hope to put a positive spin on their image. Whether it's a celebrity trying to salvage his or her reputation after a meltdown, a musician promoting an album, or business combating negative press, chances are you've recently encountered PR work and you might not have known. There's no denying the importance of this multi-billion dollar industry, but what exactly is it? How does it work? And who invented it? Here's where it gets crazy. The art of modern public relations can be generally traced to one man, Edward Bernays. There were other earlier innovators, but none altered the social landscape of North America as profoundly. Born in Vienna, Austria in 1891, Bernays' family moved to New York City about a year after his birth. He was the nephew of Sigmund Freud, and like his uncle, Bernays was captivated by the convoluted processes of the human mind. Bernays often consulted his uncle's work, and he was the first to incorporate psychology and other social sciences into PR. Yet where Freud sought to uncover motivations, Bernays sought to mask them, and Bernays' clients were companies rather than individuals. For example, one of his early cases involved Lucky Strike cigarettes in the 1920s. The American tobacco company asked him to expand sales. Women would be an ideal market, but there were problems. First, women didn't care for the green packaging of Lucky Strikes, and the manufacturer concluded that changing the color was too expensive. Second, it was taboo for women to smoke in public. Bernays took a unique approach to these obstacles. First, he recommended that if the packs must stay green, they should make green the premier color of the fashion season. During his green ball campaign, Bernays convinced French designers to incorporate green into their latest fashion lines, and not just any green, but the specific dark green shade of Lucky Strike packaging. He also engineered a green gala at the Waldorf Astoria, featuring some of society's most prominent tastemakers. To address the problem of smoking in public, he linked Lucky Strike cigarettes to the women's liberation movement, arranging for young women to march down Fifth Avenue, smoking and calling the cigarettes torches of freedom. Instead of appearing to sell cigarettes, this seemingly spontaneous march appeared to be a part of the struggle for gender equality. Suddenly, Lucky Strike cigarettes didn't just have packaging that matched the latest Parisian fashions, they also made a statement about women's equality. It's easy to see how these associations could skew market opinion, and the campaign was enormously successful. If you're like most people, then you probably assume that you know where your opinions come from. And if you're like most people, you're probably wrong. Humans tend to think of each belief as the result of a rational analysis, but this is not entirely true. Instead, our opinions are subtly influenced in numerous ways, and we're often not aware of this process. Edward Bernays tapped into this phenomenon to increase the sales of hairnets, cigarettes, bacon, and more, but that's just the beginning. He didn't restrict his talents to selling consumer goods. He persuaded consumers and citizens to approve of several other things, and that's probably something his clients don't want you to know. Even today.
Here are the facts. Although Edward Bernays is little known today, his work speaks for itself. In an earlier episode, we explored Bernays' campaign to popularize smoking among women, but this wasn't his only project. He's the reason Americans eat eggs and bacon for breakfast. Before Bernays, most Americans ate a light breakfast. In the 1950s, the Beech Nut Packing Company contracted Bernays to expand sales of bacon. Instead of attacking other bacon companies, Bernays courted experts. He wrote a carefully worded letter to 5,000 physicians asking them whether a hearty breakfast was better than a light one. The results made headlines. More than 4,500 doctors recommended a hearty breakfast and specifically mentioned bacon and eggs. Bernays' plan was a success. Business owners across the United States took notice, and they weren't the only ones. In fact, Bernays worked for the United States both before and during his corporate campaigns. However, they didn't pay him to sell bacon or cigarettes. They paid him to sell wars. Here's where it gets crazy. In 1917, President Woodrow Wilson formed the Committee on Public Information, or CPI, which raised support for U.S. engagement in World War I. Bernays worked for the organization, which was headed by George Creel. They briefed President Wilson, directing him in the use of propaganda. The CPI hired thousands of four-minute men, speakers who were trained to speak about the war for four minutes during community events. The men at CPI believed that the average attention span was about four minutes. Bernays' work was successful, and the United States eventually did enter World War I. His work didn't stop there. Over the years, Bernays consulted with other presidents, Eisenhower, Hoover, and more, while continuing to consult with businesses. Often his client base overlapped in strange ways. When the United Fruit Company was unhappy with the democratic government of Guatemala in the 1950s, they first pulled strings with the U.S. Embassy. Under the previous dictatorship, United Fruit had enormous control over the country. They had tax exemptions, a large degree of autonomy, and controlled the country's railroad and post office. Yet the new presidents refused to support United Fruit's control of the nation. They also allowed the Communist Party to operate openly. Unfortunately for those presidents and Guatemala, United Fruit had high-level connections. Alan Dulles, the director of Central Intelligence, was a stakeholder in United Fruit, and his brother, John Foster Dulles, was Secretary of State. But United Fruit still needed to convince Congress and the American public, so they hired Edward Bernays. Bernays persuaded Congress and the administration that attacks on United Fruit were proof of communist subversion and that President Arbenz was a communist himself. According to the CIA report, he sent correspondence from Time, Newsweek, The New York Times, and Chicago Tribune to report on communist activities in Guatemala. As the coup took place, Bernays persuaded the American public that the CIA-backed military juntas were actually freedom fighters stopping the spread of communism. Bernays' work paved the way from the 1954 coup of Guatemala, which triggered a civil war that would last for four decades. By the time this war ended, hundreds of thousands had died. Bernays' work attracted several notable fans, including Nazi propagandist Joseph Goebbels, who based his strategies on Bernays' theories. This isn't to say that Bernays was necessarily a bad man, just very, very good at what he did. And Goebbels wasn't the only person to copy Bernays' work. 
PR agencies across the planet use Bernays techniques every day, influencing your opinion about products, countries, and of course, politics. But who's paying them to influence you and why? That is something they don't want you to know. Here are the facts. In earlier episodes, we covered the infamous father of public relations, Edward Bernays. Whether selling Americans bacon or swaying public opinion in favor of wars, Bernays left an indelible mark on the cultural consciousness of the United States and the world. And though he has since passed on, his legacy remains with us today. But how? Here's where it gets crazy. The methods pioneered by Bernays have become commonplace. Like Bernays, PR firms around the world work to skew customer and civilian opinion in favor of one product, government action, or another. And, like Bernays, some firms work to justify wars, often while remaining largely invisible to the public. For example, have you ever heard of a firm called Hill & Knowlton? According to their website, Hill & Knowlton Strategies offers senior counsel insightful research and strategic communications planning throughout the world. In 1990, this firm led a propaganda campaign to build support for American intervention in Kuwait as Saddam Hussein's Iraqi forces invaded. Yet many American citizens were emotionally distanced from this conflict between two foreign countries hundreds of miles away. And, sadly enough, many Americans couldn't identify Kuwait on a map, much less identify with its people. In an effort to build support, Hill and Knowlton didn't just employ Bernays' techniques, they expanded them. On October 10, 1990, a young woman using the pseudonym Nurse Naira told the Congressional Human Rights Caucus a terrifying story. According to her testimony, Iraqi soldiers were killing hundreds of premature babies in Kuwait, ripping them from their incubators. The story hit home, greatly affecting the legislators who heard it and, perhaps more importantly, influencing public opinion. President George H.W. Bush repeated this story several times while justifying an intervention in Kuwait. As the story grew in popularity, more rumors emerged that Iraqi forces were digging mass graves for Kuwaiti children, for example. The United Nations held a public forum to follow up on this news, and this meeting led to a UN vote approving the use of force against Iraq. As the 1992 documentary To Sell a War points out, the actions of the Hussein regime were brutal enough even without the tremendous influence of Nurse Naira's story. But here's the thing. That's all it was, a story. A cleverly crafted piece of fiction designed to manipulate the masses into bankrolling a war. The young woman calling herself Nurse Naira was actually Naira al-Sabah, the daughter of Kuwait's ambassador to the United States, and she had been coached by Hill and Knowlton. Members of Congress did not know her real identity. As the facts emerged, Amnesty International recanted their original support of the claims. And according to Andrew Whitley of Middle East Watch, within two weeks of the liberation of Kuwait, it became apparent that the incubator story was false. Hill and Knowlton was paid over $10 million by a group called Citizens for Free Kuwait, composed of private Kuwaiti citizens and government officials. 
the Kuwaiti ambassador to the United States maintains that there was no disinformation campaign, though Hill and Knowlton consulted with him personally. This is only one example of how PR firms can affect public opinion. Today, over 100 years since the birth of Edward Bernays, the techniques he refined have become both profoundly effective and widespread. So what does this teach us? Of course, this doesn't mean that all PR is bad or that all information about war is propaganda. It does, however, mean that we must remain vigilant and inquisitive when presented with persuasive information. We must question our sources. The next time you hear a politician arguing for another war, remember to ask questions, to check the sources of the claims. Don't be taken in by well-written appeals to emotion. Instead, remember to ask yourself, is there something they don't want you to know?